I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we have political reporter at The Guardian, Sabrina Siddiqui, and former White House lawyer to President Obama and friend of the pod, Danielle Gray. Huge friend of the pod. Uh, before we begin, a few announcements. Tommy, you want to take the first? <laughs> Big announcement, guys. Uh, Crooked Media's empire is growing. Today, we announced a new show called Pod Save the World. Uh, the idea behind the show is I was... You know, not someone that was particularly focused on foreign policy for most of my life. And then I spent four years working on the White House with the National Security Council and was involved in some of the, uh, you know, the day of the bin Laden operation. I was sitting there in the Situation Room and was in meetings about Syria and Iran and some of the hardest topics we faced. And it was the most fascinating education of a lifetime. And it, it was I went from thinking that this was too complicated and boring, uh, inaccessible to me to the most important and fascinating thing you could be a part of. So I'm going to try to do a series of interviews with people uh, who I worked with along the way, reporters and others who are with the, in those meetings to bring you guys behind the scenes into what it's like, uh, how these decisions get made, and the stories uh, of the people who make them. So please subscribe to Pod Save the World. It's, it's on, on iTunes, iTunes now. On iTunes. It's on iTunes now, guys. Pod Save the World. The first episode drops on Wednesday with Jake Sullivan, who is Hillary Clinton's top advisor. And a deputy national security advisor in the White House, right? He was Joe Biden's oh, uh, national security advisor. Yeah. There it was. Excellent. All right. Pod Save the World. Go subscribe. Also, uh, keep subscribing, rating, reviewing Pod Save America in the iTunes store if you can. Um, so we can you know, get back to the top of the charts again. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I don't like this number two spot. It doesn't feel like us, frankly. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with you people, but uh, you're letting us down. The failing, the failing <laughs> and, Washington Post is taking I mean, the top spot. Unbelievable. Bunch of... <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, and my announcement, more importantly, today is the last day of open enrollment where you can sign up for the Affordable Care Act to get insurance. Uh, despite all the talk about repeal, delay, repeal and go fuck yourself, all this kind of stuff that's coming from the Republicans, if you sign up today for health insurance, you will have it for a year no matter what, at least. So go get covered. Very important. John's really one up at us with the altruism. By the here. way, I feel like that was also my announcement because I <laughs> okay. texted you to remind you about <laughs> okay. it. And I was like, we should do this on the pod. All right, let's get right into it. <laughs> Um, on Friday, President Trump signed an executive order that indefinitely suspends the settlement of Syrian refugees and temporarily bans people from seven predominantly Muslim nations from entering the United States, with an exception made for persecuted religious minorities like Christians. Uh, the headline of Benjamin Wittes' Lawfare blog on this, which you should all go read, excellent piece on this, uh, is Malevolence Tempered by Incompetence, which I think is a great place to begin uh, on on what this ban is all about. Um, so a quick, just a quick history on how this happened. Of course, in, uh, in December of 2015, uh, Trump issued a statement and called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Uh, this was, in course, in response to the San Bernardino attacks, which were carried out by a U.S. citizen and a permanent resident of Pakistan, not in the list. Uh, and then on Fox the other night, Rudy Giuliani said a couple of weeks ago, Trump called and said, quote, I want to do a Muslim ban. How do I do it legally? Um, I just want to point out that Rudy Giuliani is a great, uh, a great uh a tool for us because he cares more about seeming like an insider than actually being helpful to, oh, yeah. his, to his friends. Repeatedly. Not helpful. Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> not helpful to anyone. Kind yeah, of just a Just a dotty weirdo at this point. <laughs> well, and the, so the, the reason we're saying this too is because the White House keeps saying it's not a Muslim ban. It's not a ban, nor is it Muslim uh, uh, related. And really, Rudy Giuliani just basically gave all the lawyers who wanted to say it is a Muslim ban a lot of ammo yeah. by saying that the president himself said it was a Muslim it's ban. It's not just a public PR thing. Like, it's going to be in lawsuits. It's going to be, be in rapes. Yes, lawsuits. what Rudy just said will be in lawsuits. So good for Rudy. Um, so the way this came about was uh, Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller, a Jeff Sessions aide, uh, wrote the executive order. No one in the government was notified until shortly before the EO was final. No consultations with Congress. Uh, they said that the, the Trump administration is saying it was written in consultations with Congress. Keep in mind, Jeff Sessions is still technically in Congress, so that's what they they could be lying about that. Um, 
They also said it was for national security reasons that they didn't tell anyone because all the terrorists could have come into the country immediately. Yeah. The leapfrog that 15-month uh, vetting process for refugees. Right. Morons. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, congressional Republicans said that that was a joke, basically. They were telling people that's, that's the, no national security reasons is ridiculous. Um, they, didn't seek legal guide, they didn't seek legal guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House, though they're now uh, denying that, or the Department of Justice. Uh, and then at one point, the Department of Homeland Security said that it was not legal for the ban to apply to people with lawful permanent residence, also known as green card holders. And then Bannon and Miller overruled them. What do we think, guys? Uh, Tommy, you want to talk about why this was stupid? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many reasons why this is a bad idea. But the first one I want to talk about is the fact that members of ISIS are cheering for this policy literally on social media. You have them calling it a blessed ban. And they're comparing the propaganda value of this Muslim ban to the Iraq war. That is a frightening thing. Uh, others are saying that they're making true Anwar Alaki, who is one of the most dangerous members of al-Qaeda, they're leading propagandists. They're making his predictions come true that the U.S. would turn against its Muslim citizens. So the problem with this ban is, from a policy level, it doesn't make any sense, right? They, they cite in the EO uh, that uh, it was refugees who committed the 9-11 attacks. None of the countries those individuals were from are covered in this ban. It was Saudi Arabia, Egypt. More broadly, one of the biggest problems we have in the United States, the thing that literally keeps national security officials up at night are homegrown extremists. People who are living here, who become disaffected, who stay up at night. Looking we're citizens, at, right? We're citizens who look at, you know, ISIS propaganda online and they become radicalized because they feel like there is a war between the East and the West and they are soldiers in that war. Uh, and those people are going to be further radicalized and driven away from the communities we need them to assimilate into by this order. It is a horrible idea. I have a million more reasons, but I want to kick it to you. Well, one fa- uh, one, just one fact that I saw that I thought was pretty compelling is that uh, vastly more people are accidentally killed by toddlers with guns uh, than by refugees and terrorist attacks. There's just no... It's just not a... This is this is a an order looking for a problem. Tommy, can you also talk about... Because I think some people would say, obviously, people coming from... Um, countries that are terrorist hotspots should be vetted. And Trump has told people that basically we're just letting people into the country with with very little vetting and that we need better vetting. So what are the current procedures in place? Because I don't know if people understand how stringent yeah. they are right now. I mean, the, the reason this policy is, this has always been a policy chasing a headline, right? Because the refugee vetting process is actually very long and very onerous. Uh, and, you know, if you were a terrorist who just wanted to get to the U.S. to commit an act and kill yourself in the process, there's a lot faster ways to get here. But, for example, a Syrian refugee named Mustafa Hassoun wrote a piece for Politico about the vetting process. He was a part of it. He said he was interviewed five times over 15 months in person, over the phone, by the U.N., by the U.S. They asked about his family, his politics, his hobbies, his childhood, his opinions, his love life. No less than four government agencies had the opportunity to screen me. By the time I received an offer to live in the U.S., the U.S. officials in charge of my case knew me better than my family and friends do. Right. Like the vetting is extreme. It takes a long time. I would personally argue that we're not letting enough refugees into this country, given that we have a role uh, or or we're part of why the Syria situation is so bad or some of the other countries affected like Iraq, a country we invaded. We're we're keeping out interpreters who helped our army at the time. Yemen, another place we bombed the shit out of over the course of the last decade. Uh, People are so desperate they can't get in. So on a policy level and a security level, we're not doing anything with this order Seemingly to keep people out, we seem to be doing a whole lot to create more extremists in the process. Now, I saw uh, a bunch of conservatives on Twitter, and then Trump said this himself in the statement that the White House released yesterday. Well, Obama did this for six months in 2011 for refugees coming from Iraq. So do you want to talk about that? Outrageous. In 2011, we ordered a review of what was called a special immigrant visa. And this was a program created to help Iraqis who helped us during the war to get to the United States. It was a very narrow uh, review order that definitely did slow down the refugee process for about six months. The reason we did it was response to a specific threat information. Two guys, two Iraqis were arrested in Kentucky for plotting an attack. So we were like, whoa, let's slow down. Let's take a look what's going on here. But it wasn't it, it was very narrow. Trump's order applies to seven entire countries. 140 million people, right? Yeah, 130, 140 million people. So we slowed. We did not stop resettlement. And you know what? People criticized at the time. And and it was in response to a specific problem and something that needed to be tightened up. The exact 
uh, thing that these conservatives are claiming Obama never did. Right. There's a certain brand of person on right now that thinks that the way you kind of, I don't know, defend Trump or pretend like what's happening isn't uh, uh, deeply troubled is be like, you guys are overreacting. This is exactly what Obama did. But you don't care because you're just a bunch of liberals and the media is biased. Here's the thing. First of all, that's not and true. Then there's the, and then from some of them, there's the inevitable like, this is what's going to reelect Trump. I, yeah, I hate that. I, I can't even... I can't even process that today, <laughs> but but it's the um, this idea that that uh, you guys are holding Trump to a different standard. First of all, we're not right. These are different things. But also, I can't believe we have this impression that Donald Trump wanted to put in place a Muslim ban. He talked about a Muslim ban yeah. for well, two years. Said, that's why I started with trail. that. Like the the statement is still on the website. Muslim ban. Yeah, it is still the, on the campaign yeah, website. Muslim ban is still on the campaign website, but the judicial the judicial branch is no longer on <laughs> WhiteHouse.gov. So priorities in order with those but goons. Favreau, I, like, I, I do want to address your point because there are people who are going to reflexively say, like, you know, you're not listening to the Trump voters. There's, people are scared out there. You know, let's not come down hard on this. I, I just want to stay... I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? I don't care what you think the politics could be. I don't think any of us can figure this out. We should respond to this on a moral level, and and we should respond from a place of authenticity because these are our values and these are the things we care about, right? And if you disagree, Google the St. Louis Manifest. That is a boat filled with German-Jewish refugees that were turned away in 1939 by the U.S. and Cuba, and a quarter of them died in the Holocaust. We should not fuck around with situations like this where people's lives are at risk because it will not only... Those people will be put at risk, and it will harm our reputation in perpetuity. There's um, there's a certain kind of it's just this like idea that like, you guys are playing right into Trump's hands. Like, look, Trump is innovative in a certain way in that we've always had wedge issues, right? You know, gay rights was a wedge issue, abortion's still a wedge issue, but Trump and Bannon are just being like, we're going to turn core tenets of America into wedge issues. Well, you know what? We just have to jump into that trap. Like, there's just nothing else to well, do. Well, this is maybe. I mean. I will say we were all in the White House, especially you, Tommy, saw these decisions being made every day in national security. But it's like there are very tough decisions around national security where you have to decide how to balance liberty with security. And sometimes you have to make some concessions on that, right, to keep us safe. And maybe, you know, and like even the guy who wrote the um, the Lawfare blog that I was just talking about, he was like, look, I am saying how bullshit this this ban is. He's like, I am for uh, non-criminal detentions. I am for some of these things that you, you know, I thought. So there's a lot of tough things that the government does that a lot of conservatives or people who are in, uh, interested in national security would say, yeah, I'm for that, but this ban is stupid. I mean, well, and, yeah. and I think if if Trump really wanted to do this because of a specific threat, right, it, they could have, the Trump could have given a speech on Friday saying, we are not at war with the Muslim world. This is not about religion. I am doing this for a specific reason. We all still would have completely disagreed and flipped out about it. But it, it goes to show that they did this. They did this specifically to freak people out yep. and to cause chaos and to be cruel publicly. Like right. this was this was so sloppily poorly done uh, that it was it was not it was not a well thought out thing in any way, shape, or and form. And it's also just they have no respect for the institutions of the government at any level, not even for the ones they now control. So they they don't use the the you know the, the systems designed to make sure that these orders make sense, are constitutional, et cetera, et cetera. They also are showing a profound lack of respect for the people that are enforcing it. They're putting they're forcing government employees at the local level to decide whether or not they're supposed to listen to their superiors or obey a court order or talk to the congresswoman who came to the airport. Like there's just such a profound lack of respect for Americans, for Americans, for American government servants, and also especially for these desperate right. people trying to get into the country. I, I got up on my moral high horse. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you're like six I, feet off the ground right I, now. I realize that. But in like, <laughs> I want to be clear. Presidents make decisions on foreign policy based on U.S. interests, right? It is a mm-hmm. selfish, narrow decision-making process frequently about what's good for the country. And I've seen President Obama make many of those decisions. And we, and we have not gotten involved in every humanitarian uh, challenge across the world. Look at Syria, right? Like, we, our record is not perfect. But I, I just think this policy is so dumb. No one has been killed in the U.S. in a terrorist act by anyone who emigrated or whose parents have emigrated from the seven countries targeted by this EO, right? It is slapdash, half-assed idiocy. And you have countries that are left out, like Saudi Arabia, where the majority of the 9-11 hijackers came from. And people are pointing out, rightly, I think, that Trump has business interests there. And, like, you know what? The bigger problem is 
The U.S. can't fight terrorism alone with U.S. troops globally. We need partners, right? We need partners like Pakistan, who help us deal with the Taliban or al-Qaeda, who need to have the political capital to work with their people to allow us to do certain things we need to do and for them to help us by them taking certain actions. When we alienate their entire populations, when we give their governments political cover to tell us to go away in perpetuity, we're making ourselves less safe. I just think we shouldn't have elected an old dotty racist to be president of the United States. I think he's making a fucking mess of it. Part of the problem. All right, let's talk about some of the results of the ban and the reaction. Um, uh, love it. You went to LAX uh-huh. on Saturday evening mm-hmm. with Emily, and you guys uh, did a little protesting. We did. Um, Look, not my usual Saturday. It's funny, you know, there really is something happening with people going to these protests, people that wouldn't normally. It's awesome. And, like, I would not have gone to it like, a year ago. I never would have gone to LAX on a Saturday night to protest. Right. I don't even like I'm really going there to fly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a godforsaken place. <laughs> it's a godforsaken place when they're letting the refugees in. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, we went and we protest and... Um, Talk to anyone? <laughs> I don't like. I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to get you to the. <laughs> well, yeah, no. So we, we so I talked to um so I talked to this uh so I talked to a bunch of people there, but there was this one woman who was telling her story. She was uh, just there to pick up her uncle, uh, who I believe was coming in from Iran, and she showed up at 7 p.m. Uh, the day the EO was signed, and she was there for a full 24 hours, and her family was waiting at home. They were excited to see him. The table was set. They had like made his favorite food. The like kids were staying up late, and she just never left the airport because. That he was stuck there, yeah. um, and she was just exhausted, and 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 like you know she'd been crying, and her whole family had no idea what was going on. But it was incredibly powerful to see how supported she felt. Um, you know, she she spoke at this. There was you know several hundred people, maybe a thousand people gathered at, at the international terminal, and there were all these speakers. But then this woman got up there and spoke, and and um, it was uh, incredibly moving because then she's just like, I just I just came to the airport to pick up my uncle, and. Um, Everybody cheered and supported her, and there were these, you know, dozens of lawyers sitting around uh, a sign that said, "If you know, if you need legal help, come here." And all these people coming in to translate. Um, there were two members of Congress there, kind of trying to get the border, uh, get the uh, customs officials to like, give them any information, which they didn't either didn't have or couldn't give because it was chaos. Um, but I think the inspiring thing is that people are turning out to protest in a new way. Like there is a. Like there was, there were black. I, I feel like we're building on the success of Black Lives Black Lives Matter on uh, union organizing, even like Occupy Wall Street, which I think was was is still a contingent that's p- part of this new growing movement. But a spirit and culture of protest taking taking hold amongst people who never would protest is incredibly powerful. Yeah. And, and I think barring barring things getting much worse, and, and you know we're, we're not in the prediction business anymore, but. The single most important thing we can do is figure out how to harness this new energy and turn it into votes in 2018. Like this is there. Millions of people are taking the streets as a matter of habit now, which never, ever has happened before. I I noticed this morning. I mean, one thing is there's more of us than them. Um, And the second thing is the, the greatest danger to Donald Trump's presidency is a unified opposition. And he knows that. And. Part of what he's doing this morning and his some of his responses, he's just trying to pick off people left and right. Like he, you know, he dismisses John McCain and Lindsey Graham speaking out against this as well. They were former presidential candidates. He tries to single out Chuck Schumer's t- fake tears, you know, to try to get him. So he tries to attack the the Washington Post and the New York Times. Like he's trying to pick people off left and right, and they're saying, "Oh, it was just a few people that are protesting. It's just a f- few people who are upset." And they try to minimize all this stuff because what he can't acknowledge is that there is a unified opposition against this that is, you know, uh, thousands of people at airports across the country, not just in liberal coastal cities, but mm-hmm. in the center yeah. of the country, right? And by yeah. the way, thanks to all the friends of the pod sending us pictures and also who came up to us at these various events and things telling us that, you know, it means a lot, but also just sending us the pictures is cool and we're sharing them. And and Democratic politicians that have gone and speak spoken out and the tech community uh, has a lot of people have spoken out as, as they were pushed. And as they were pushed a lot. And a few Republican mm-hmm. politicians have managed to get these kinds of words out. I don't really think this is necessarily the best idea. <laughs> but, it, but, it, but that goes to show, too, how protest and opposition works. Right. They were completely silent, Republican politicians, at the beginning of this. Uh, fucking chief coward Paul Ryan was out there. Yeah. Anybody <laughs> was saying, way, like, absolutely, we're for the ban. And now Paul Ryan is behind right. more conservative, the, traditionally conservative members you know in the Republican what? Party is, because he went out there early. And, I think and now is, McConnell, McConnell, didn't, <laughs> McConnell is now more against it than Ryan is. I happen to see Marco Rubio's face on the back of a milk carton at the Bristol Farms. Did it say Marcus Rubenstein? It said, well, it said Marco Rubio, uh, last seen uh, uh, endorsing Trump uh, holding a newspaper. Um, uh, and also... Uh, 
may, may, may be out of sorts and confused because he almost showed backbone but didn't in the Rex Tillerson vote. Oh. Uh, also travels under Marcus Rubenstein. Uh, will run from reporters. <laughs> the reason I, the reason I felt so, feel so strongly about not uh, licking your finger and putting it in the wind on the politics of this these sorts of issues early is because I think when people see this unified opposition, it moves them quickly. It can not only move lawmaker opinion, but it can move public opinion quickly. So we should stand up. Like people, people want to get on board with something when it's principled, right? And I think you know. Part of it is like these stories you're hearing out of the airport. Like one of the best ways we build ties with countries is student exchanges or cultural exchanges. When you tell a kid in Tehran who is attending MIT that he can't come back, that, that is so dangerous. Interpreters. Iraqi like, interpreters, this like Iranian woman who's coming to Harvard Medical to work on a cure yeah. for tuberculosis. The, the, the guy, Iran's Oscar Fahardi, who's nominated for Best Foreign Language Film for the Oscar, <laughs> like may not be able to come to the Oscars. Now, right. I don't like seeing films with words on the bottom. I mean, I didn't come here to fucking read. But still, I still think it's wrong. Do you think Marco has enough cash uh, to not show up on his credit card forms where he's staying right now? I don't know. Is he bouncing around like the fugitive? But it, it is. It is. It's. It's the activism and the and the organizers and the protesters who are pushing the politics right. here. You saw Democratic politicians were like elbowing each other, like tripping over each other to get, to, get to, to the, the airport. It's great. Good. And you know what? Chuck Schumer has been great on this. Like he was. You know. They weren't fake tears. He was like genuinely moved. Yes. And I think like, I don't know, there's like certain kind of New York Jew that like you talk about the Emma Lazarus poem and you get you get misty. Well, you, know? the other thing you is, do. on this political front, I mean, what scares me about this is is clearly this process, like Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller writing this EO, not sharing it with any of the relevant agencies, writing it so poorly that there was just mass confusion. Like point A. It's very easy to have ideas in government. The execution is hard, which is why you vet things, because there's second and third order consequences that you don't anticipate, like millions of people with green cards not knowing if they're allowed back in, right, or confused customs and border I can't believe a 31-year-old graduate of Duke couldn't... Uh uh, come up with an executive order without the help of the U.S. government. Men- mentored tough, by Richard Spencer, tough, by the way. Tough hit on Duke. But so, but the other thing on the on the politics of this, this is where I do think Steve Bannon knows exactly what he's doing because we are making it incredibly like European leaders are facing huge security threats greater than us because of their borders. Mm-hmm. You know, people can flow through Europe far more easily. They're it's easier to get there from Syria, right? Um, they're trying to secure their borders and keep their people safe while maintaining their values. When Bannon is giving the right-wing party across Europe cover by doing this shit. And so we need to show as Americans that this is actually not what we stand for. Donald Trump is not putting forward our values and our beliefs to help these guys abroad as well. Yeah. So and so all of this is working uh, in a sense. The ACLU sued. Uh, a judge granted, federal judge granted a national stay on the deportation part. Um, in Boston, they granted a stay on both deportation and detention. Um, by the way, the ACLU has raised $20 million now. I don't know, some yeah. kind of crazy amount of money and has like 150,000 new members. It's probably more by now. Um, so that that's really hopeful. Um, and finally today or last night, the White House and DHS basically walked back the part of the ban that has to do with legal permanent residents, green card green card holders. They say it was never a part of that, which is a lie. Of course, right, they, they're, they, they're lying. Yeah, as Jake Tapper tweeted this morning, he said they told him over the weekend it did include green card holders. And of course, green card holders were being detained all weekend long and being asked like intrusive questions in this kind of ad hoc uh, loyalty test, which is ridiculous because. They've already gotten the green card. They already went through the process. I mean, green card holders, America's their home. I mean, they work here. They live here. They can do everything but vote and serve on the jury. Like, mm-hmm. I, It's ridiculous. So we should also talk about some of the global reaction to this already. Um, you know, it's been criticized by— I'd say it's been mixed. Ter- Theresa May and Merkel, um, Justin Trudeau's welcoming all the refugees to Canada— uh, Iraq and Iran have threatened to retaliate by barring American citizens from from their countries. And then, like you were saying, Tommy, ISIS was just posting the stories with no comments. Well, you know, I, <laughs> ISIS from, just from like, the Muslim world, yeah, it's been you know mixed reviews. Like ISIS seems to love this order, but the rest of the Muslim community, the rest of the Muslim world, is opposed to it. I yeah, think. big. It's, uh, my best. Yeah, that's my. That's, my a, gut. that's some searing analysis. That's my gut. That's some yeah. searing Hot analysis. Take. What happens next? Where, where where does this go from here? Do we think? Because uh, I know that some now some Republicans are saying in Congress, leading Republicans, that Trump has to revise the EO. Um, I can't tell. Does he do that? Does he, uh, you know, do they just move on? Well, we also He's announcing a Supreme Court pick uh, Tuesday night at 8 p.m., so yeah. this seems like an effort to change the subject. Right, yeah. 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 Everyone knows that when uh, when something's going really well, you move up your Supreme Court pick to change the news. So <laughs> I think they're showing with their actions. It's like, yeah, I, they can fix this with a law at any time. You know, Congress can supersede an executive order anytime they want, but they don't want to. They my, just want to They just want to get out of this. My, my my fear is that they just continue to add countries to the list, 
right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense that Pakistan isn't on there with given the stated rationale from all these other places. So the, there's ways for them to expand this and continue to demagogue it. I and think now you have Eric Trump calling the, up Eric Trump calling up his, his like people in Pakistan. I mean, it'd be a shame if we couldn't get a hotel opened up. Yeah, it, but I'm not even joking. The, ch- the challenge they have right is like. George Bush, his credibility never recovered from Hurricane Katrina because they looked unbelievably incompetent. And mm-hmm. I think that if, if there's a takeaway from this, the events of the last few days, it is these people are utterly incompetent and they are in charge of our country and they're fucking it up in week one. I, I was saying that the other night. I was like, what would Donald Trump say about this if he was a citizen on Twitter? Yeah. And the angle he would probably take is, what a mess, chaos, look at the airports, complete incompetence, right? Yeah. It's not only that it was malevolent and cruel and against our values, like you were saying, Tommy, but it was so stupidly executed. Here's the thing, though. Terrible execution. The thing that like we have to also keep in mind, though, is... Capriciousness, incompetence, and authoritarianism are very, very old friends. Like these things go together. Like the having having you know unexpected announcements that green cards don't apply that strikes fear in the hearts of people. Um, having incompetence uh, gives you the ability to say like, oh, we need more power. I mean, one of the things that happened after Katrina is the Bush administration claimed that part of the reason it happened is we didn't have enough authority. Right. That's that. So we also just need to be aware. Like these are. These are old problems, right? The problem of an incompetent, bumbling, authoritarian impulse. Um, uh, uh, it's very dangerous. That's all. That's all I got to say about it. And I also think that you know we should all be prepared that if a, God forbid, a terrorist attack does happen, um, these, the question and the debate will not be as easy as it was this time because this was in a response to basically nothing. And when when there is some attack and God forbid, like God help us if it's a refugee or someone from one of these countries. It's going to be. It's going to be worse next time. They're just going to use it. They're going to use it. That's why the. the, That's why they won't. They won't. They'll just revise the EO, but give leave themselves the ability to add countries. I mean, there's all these, all these, all this vague and poorly written language inside this sort of Stephen Miller special, this Jeff Sessions special, really, um, to give them the chance in the future to, um, you know, basically shut the borders. And which is a reminder, and I, I think Dan appropriately hammered this on Thursday. Not one Democrat should vote for Jeff Sessions. I do yes. not care oh, if yes. he's your that colleague. I don't care if you see him in the House gym. He is a menace to our entire country and everything we stand for, and he should not be voted it for. It was his aide, Stephen Miller, who was, you know, mind meld with Sessions that wrote this executive order. Sessions is a dangerous person. I don't care that he was, like, nice to a lot of senators. I'm sure he was a nice personally to a lot of people. That's wonderful. But he, his views on government power and authority is, is, is very dangerous. Honestly, Coney. we don't even need to make an argument it's not an argument it's a pressure thing if a democrat votes for jeff sessions they're not a fucking democrat they're done we're done we're not going to support them we're not going to help them we're going to primary them we're done yeah. no just democrat re- just be nice to give people a reason why they should vote I, against him they're not listening <laughs> who gives a shit they're a bunch of bunch of any democrat considering voting for jeff sessions is a calculating moron so let them calculate if a democrat votes for jeff sessions they will lose the support of millions and millions of, of democrats of John Lovett. John Lovett. I will the fucking, no t-shirts honestly, for you there it is honestly, not a friend of the pod honestly, not a friend of the pod guys um, where i go people follow frankly um so God, test me sufferable test me you've done this listeners yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stop tweeting with your tweets <laughs> okay when we come back we will have sabrina Siddiqui of the guardian this is pod save america stick around there's more great show coming your way you can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... 
You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. With us on the pod this morning, we have from The Guardian, Sabrina Siddiqui. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Joined us before on the Keeping It 1600 Days. Welcome back, Sabrina. Hi, thanks for having me on. Uh, Thanks for joining us. So, uh, I saw from your Twitter feed that you were at some of these protests uh, in D.C. yesterday and Mm -hmm. Saturday, or both. Um, What did you see there? What was the the mood? Well, I think that it's becoming the new normal in D.C. on the weekend to just see people scattered about with poster boards heading toward the White House or toward the U.S. Capitol. I think one of the signs that really sums it up was protests in the New Brunch. Nice. <laughs> it's sort of it's so where DC. we find ourselves. Low bar, uh, D.C. Because, because any um, given day, we don't know what to expect. And uh, yesterday, Sunday, there were hundreds of protesters who began at the White House to protest this refugee and partial Muslim ban that obviously Donald Trump signed Friday, and they, some, many of them also marched over the U.S. Capitol, where there, was a, there were a lot of emotional themes from people chanting, this is what America looks like, to singing, um, you know, the national anthem, and just trying to present a portrait of a diverse America. I think the key question, though, is because you're starting to see people galvanized, and we certainly saw the biggest show of that in the Women's March the after inauguration, is does it actually become a movement that translates to something more at the ballot box? That's the big question is where, where does the organizing go from here? Was the um, person with the brunch sign, were they gay and handsome? <laughs> <laughs> that just felt like it has a gay vibe. I'm just trying to check out what, what who's out there, you know? What are well, people doing? I, think I, I, could, I, could, I didn't get that up close and personal of a, of a look. There were also a lot of dogs. Um, with some pretty good signage. One of them had a sweater that said Trump doesn't even have a dog. I think at this point, people... But I love that actually, sign. A lot of signs directed at Paul Ryan. Uh, that was an interesting theme in terms of extending the accountability to Republicans in Congress who are supporting or silent, supporting the refugee ban or silence. Uh, Paul Ryan certainly was the first high-profile Republican and one of the only ones to immediately throw his support behind this executive order on Friday. Sabrina, this is Tommy. I was wondering what you're seeing or reporting about the global reaction to this, especially from uh, majority Muslim countries or from you know Muslim communities across the United States. Are, are people feeling like we would expect them to feel? Is there is the reaction been caustic and fast, or what what's going on out there? Uh, it's absolutely been both swift and caustic with respect to how um, this is being perceived, not just by Muslim-majority countries, but as you said, Muslim communities who live in, around the world, even in Europe. Uh, certainly, I myself just heard immediately or was inundated by text messages from family members of mine who live in London asking, you know, what this means for, for them and just what this, what's, what's happening in America right now. Because the, the perception globally is very much that this is a Muslim ban whether you know whether the debate over semantics that's taking place here, notwithstanding, I think because this is someone who campaigned openly on a Muslim ban, and and even if this is certainly not suspending all Muslim immigration to the United States, it, 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 the language was so clear that you know religious minorities would be given preference, and that you, in order to be prioritized, you would have to be a religious minority. And obviously, we're talking about seven Muslim majority countries, so that's because that's walking as close as you can the line of mm-hmm. not having to say the word Muslim, you could probably try and survive some kind of legal challenge. So I think, you know, you're also seeing backlash toward political leaders. You know, Theresa May, I mean, since I report for The Guardian, one of the big themes is her own conservative MPs are criticizing her because she was here, of course, uh, just the day before or the day of when Donald Trump uh, signed this executive order and hasn't condemned him. So I think that... Literally held his hand. Held his hand. I mean, the, the thing is that, that this very much feeds into the notion that this is going to be a president who is going to overtly target uh, people based on their faith and also based on their nationality. Uh, and you all, I'm sure some people have seen Iran talking about potentially retaliating, and all that's probably left now is other countries then 
responding in kind, which is very much a possibility if their if their citizens are not allowed to come here. Yeah, I saw that that note about religious minorities, specifically Christians, uh, getting preference. But is, do you have any sense if they would also include like? Shiites or Alawites as persecuted minorities? Because it seems like there are a lot of people uh, who are Muslim who are being targeted because they are religious minorities. But I I don't know if there's any sense out of the Trump administration that those people might also get some sort of special treatment. No, there's no sense of that. In fact, the only group that Donald Trump himself has singled out is Christians. And I, I think that you know, he, he, only, he not only made that, those comments himself in an interview on the same day that the executive order was unveiled to the Christian Broadcasting Network, but that's something he repeatedly said on the campaign trail. And it was striking because there are, there are some reports that, for example, Yazidis would not be given prioritization, even though the U.S. government has openly said that Yazidis are, are victims of a genocide. So clearly, I mean, we know they're, they're very much doing this on the fly, and it's tough to say, but I don't think that Donald Trump is getting into the weeds on who are minorities within Islam. I mean, he has um, no idea, right? I mean, he just has, he has he no fucking any, idea. Exactly. He doesn't have that, that understanding or that nuance. And I think that Rudy Giuliani's comments were very telling when he was explaining this over the weekend on Fox News, saying that Donald Trump had asked him and others for how to do a Muslim ban legally. So it's very clear. And I've talked to lawyers at the ACLU who say that that's something that the one thing that they gives them some confidence that that they can really litigate any any of the actions he takes against Muslims in, in court is there's just such a rich history of of Donald Trump's statements that you could use to point to his intent here, which is to discriminate against Muslims. I've noticed on Capitol Hill there have been more Republicans in the last 24 hours who have started to say that the Trump administration needs to revise the executive order to to make it narrower. Do you get a sense that this is sort of a movement among Republicans that's going to build? Do you think it's going to pressure Trump to do anything? What's your sense of how the politics of this are playing out, at least among the Republicans? Well, I think the silence for the first 24 hours from most of them was telling because they were trying to get a sense of what is even happening. So concerning to so many of them has been the fact that forget consulting Republicans in Congress. The White House didn't even consult the appropriate agencies. Um, not even the new dep- uh, chief of the Department of Homeland Security. So right. I think that the, the the question is, are they just talking about green card holders who were clearly also being swept up in this order over the weekend, and now that's something the administration is claiming that they're going to look into revising? Or are Republicans also going to argue that beyond just green card holders and people who have been vetted, is it still too broad? Because they have supported and passed legislation that would ban refugees from certain Muslim-majority countries and restrict even overall immigration from certain Muslim-majority countries. They did that um, in December of 2015 after the attacks in Paris. So I, and I, it's, it's one of those questions of was that posturing in the campaign because Donald Trump had made it a campaign year issue? Or are they, or are they actually now kind of looking at the scenes at the airports and at this movement we're talking about that's mobilizing and, and assessing the politics of it? Um, and, that, and that question, I don't think, has been answered. They're going to be back today, and people like myself, I think, will be asking them a lot of questions as to how they could also possibly argue that this is not a case of openly discriminating on the basis of religion and national origin, um, and not just you know some question of national security. Listen, something's happened uh, that I think may change the contours of this whole thing. Uh, Marco Rubio has emerged from hiding. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Uh, he is uneasy, and he has concerns. Oh, you yep. coward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he ate too much dinner last night. Uh, you, co- you covered uh, the Rubio campaign, right, Sabrina? Yes, I did. I took my, my re- I'm like the resident Rubio beat reporter, I think, because somehow people still look at him as the source of what will Marco do. At this point, I actually think it's very, very clear what he, that he, he, he's He's pretty much made it clear he doesn't intend to really fight the administration. But yes, that's a recurring theme that I often get called upon to answer to. Um, and listen, here's a here. Also, just to, I don't want to I don't want to give him short trip. He also has some unanswered questions. Unbelievable. Never disappoints Marco Rubio. Um, Sabrina, I just want to close by asking you, uh, how are you feeling? Um, you know, this is tough. I, I will tell you that I had texts that I was receiving from family members. My family is from Pakistan. 
uh, paranoid because the White House is signaling they might add Pakistan to the list, and that would mean that our relatives who come to visit all the time can't do that for who knows how long of a period. Uh, and it doesn't matter that, it, you know, I don't want to make it just about any one country because those of us who have been raised in Muslim communities, this, this action that was taken directly affects people that I have grown up with and, and people that, you know, are part of our communities who are trying to figure out, you know, what this means for, for their family members. And I think that, you know, I, I always said this whole debate of we take him literally versus seriously, take him both ways and don't underestimate his potential to do everything that he campaigned on doing. Um, so, you know, the, everyone keeps saying, well, maybe he won't go quite so far as what he campaigned upon, but really anything's possible. Uh, and the fact that this has come within the first week of his presidency um, really puts you on a path to worrying that this might just be the beginning. So, yeah. you know, you take it one day at a time, but I do think that, you know, the, the scenes that you're seeing are very encouraging that people are out there, and not just in democratic cities, they're out there all over the country. So I think that the question becomes, again, though, the key question is, can, can people translate this, these protests into real action in, when it comes to trying and defeating some of these, these measures? That's what really would give people a lot more sense of security in these communities. But it's a start. It is so, a start. Like I yeah. said, one day, one day at a time. All right. Sabrina, thank you for joining us. Thank and, you. Uh, please come back again. Thanks. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Thanks. This is Pod Save America. Stick around. There's this great stuff coming. Lots of great stuff. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Okay, so before we uh, move on to our interview with Danielle Gray to talk about EOs in the Supreme Court, um, let's talk about Steve Bannon. Our favorite. Our favorite, right. And the story that was out over the weekend that... There was also a presidential memorandum on Friday that reorganized the National Security Council uh, so that Bannon gets a seat on the principal's committee. Committee. Yeah, let me explain how this works. So the National Security Council is essentially an entity that convenes all the relevant parts of the national security apparatus. So a a principal's committee meeting is when the national security advisor gets the secretary of defense, secretary of state, the DNI, all those relevant people literally around a table in the White House Situation Room to talk about an issue and try to make decisions. Um, What they did over the weekend was they gave Steve Bannon a political hack, a permanent invite, literal seat at the table at those meetings, and they removed the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff. Okay, they're allowed as needed. Let me just point out that almost every PC principles committee I've ever been to begins with a intelligence overview <clears throat> and includes a military component. So, of course, the chairman should be there. Um, this is a huge break from precedent. The, there are people out there trying to say, well, Axelrod attended a couple meetings. Like, I was in those meetings. Gibbs and Axelrod or David Pluff, they would occasionally attend national security meetings if there was an issue that touched on 
working with Congress or rolling something out to the public, something we really needed to explain. It was rare and it was something we tried to prevent because you don't ever want politics to come up in those meetings. In fact, there's sort of like a false piousness where we try to prevent it. So, you know, this basically means, I think, that foreign policy is getting run through Bannon. And, you know, Sean Spicer is trying to say, oh, well, Steve Bannon was in the Navy for seven years, so it makes sense to be there. Meanwhile, they are telling a four-star general, General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that he's allowed to show up if he asks. It is the most ludicrous, idiotic thing I've ever fucking heard. I love the Navy thing. Sean Spicer, come on, man. Laughable. Also, I remember a couple years back when it was reported that Axelrod might have gone to a national security meeting. There was like two weeks of hysteria. Hysteria. Bob Gates lost his mind. He wrote a book called Duty. He was Fox, so upset. Fox News did like 50 million segments about how bad this Guys, was. This guy is now running the National Security Council. He's a nationalist. I don't he's, think. Uh, I don't think this these op- this opposition's on the level. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. just, it, it, like I, we wanted to touch on this because this is codifying politics as being the cornerstone of their foreign policy decision-making. If Donald Trump wants to talk to Steve Bannon or Jared Kushner or Joe Schmo on the street about foreign policy, that is his right. But there's something that's supposed to be sacrosanct about the White House Situation Room deliberations where you're supposed to focus on U.S. interests and not re-election, not politics. Politics it, it seeps through every decision ever made. Like We can't pretend otherwise, but I've sat in a million meetings and people like Dennis McDonough or Tom Donilon or General Jones would never allow for a political debate to emerge in those meetings. It doesn't happen. And by the way, don't take uh, us Obama hacks word for it, right? Like all the Bush people General are out there. Hayden. All the Bush people are out there today. Josh Bolton, who's the chief of staff in the Bush White House, all these other people are saying they wouldn't like Carl Rove un- in those meetings. Yes, they wouldn't. They wouldn't let Carl Rove in those meetings. They think this is unprecedented. And this is a this is a bipartisan condemnation of this complete fucking bullshit. And that Carl Steve Rove. Bannon, scary white nationalist <laughs> uh, sympathizer, is now running the National Security Council. Carl, Carl and if you want to see if you want to see like how well he's doing, look no further than how the EO played out and how the Muslim ban played yeah. out over the weekend. Great, work. great job, great job, Steve Bannon. More of that. To come you know what now i don't want to make my point you just kept rolling over me so you're fine you feel good about it that must be so hard hard. imagine (laughs) imagine what happens let's get danielle gray on the phone let's do it all right when we're back (laughs) when we when we come back we will have former lawyer to president obama and good friend of the pod danielle gray and one last point i mean if look if you're a political hack interfering in national security decisions because you've muscled your way into a national security meeting you have no business being a part of and you just want to feel comfortable try tommy john underwear (laughs) Okay, we'll be really, really. (laughs) Hey, don't go anywhere. This is Pod Save America, and there's more on the way. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. On the pod today, we have Danielle Gray, who was a lawyer in the White House when we were there. Look, Danielle, we're friends, um, and I just want you to know that I kind of play a character on this podcast where I'm, like, arrogant and a bit smug. <laughs> Straight shooter. <laughs> can, you ima- can you imagine that, Danielle? Danielle is also I'm on ex- the— I'm just so excited that um, I thought it was going to take me years to make the cut as a friend of the pod, so I'm just excited that there's a lot of legal news um, these first 10 days. <laughs> yeah. You jumped right to the front of the line. <laughs> um, let's let's start with talking about the. We were going to have you on originally just to talk about Supreme Court stuff, but uh, since the uh, executive order came out Friday uh, banning uh, refugees and people from Muslim majority countries, we figured we should start there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the process of crafting an executive order in the White House? I know this is an exciting topic, but uh, it seems relevant. Yeah, I mean, today. I think ordinarily this is probably not a very exciting topic, but I think. You know, this weekend highlights the kind of chaos and confusion and very real, you know, fear that can ensue when that process is abandoned. So, um, you know, our process generally was one that really dates back to the 60s, uh, which is that you would receive a draft executive order. Lawyers in the White House and at the Justice Department would review the executive order for legal concerns. you would then have the Office of Management and Budget circulate that draft to different agencies within the executive branch that might have interests or equities in the particular policy uh, decision at, at, at issue. 
um, to determine whether there were any concerns, if you had concerns about how it was being implemented or concerns about how it would operate in practice. And you'd have this kind of back and forth so that ultimately when you handed the executive order to the president, um, he could be assured that what he was signing uh, had been reviewed for legality, um, that agencies that may have, you know, had concerns about it, that those concerns were aired out before he was signing it. And so that was the that was the general basic process that we followed. You, I, did, I, did that happen with the Trump White House this time around? <laughs> Uh, it's 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 unclear. Uh, you know, we I think in, it's really hard to follow the news these days. But um, I think in the last uh, 48 hours, we've heard varying reports. You know, I think his press secretary said that there were national security concerns about showing it with agencies. Uh, there was a uh, unnamed senior official yesterday who said that you know the Justice Department looked at it. There have been suggestions that maybe the transition beachhead teams um, took a look. But, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, you know, it's hard to tell. Uh, they could tell us whether or not the Office of Legal Counsel uh, wrote a memo um, to the president assuring the president of its form and legality, as is uh, customary. They could, you know, a reporter could certainly ask them that, and they could answer that question. Can I ask you a question? So what would happen? <laughs> Look, this wouldn't have happened, but, like, let's say uh, uh, the, Obama, the Obama White House produced this draft EO, and it came across your desk, um, other than, you know, literally setting yourself on fire inside the White House and running screaming out of the building, like, what would you do with your red pen? Like, what would be, like, what would you do? If I received that executive order? Uh-huh. Um, that's a hard counterfactual. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's just talk about the way it was Listen, drafted. Like, say say you agreed yeah. with the policy in principle, but, but you read the text of the EO. I mean, was it, because it, it seems like it wasn't very well sure, written in the first sure, place. Sure, sure, sure. Listen, I, you know, I think Thanks for part, fixing of my question. Reason, part of the reason that people have been talking about process here is, is not out of, a, out of a sense of we did it this way, so you should too. But part of the reason is if, if you're a lawyer in the administration, um, and you want the president's policy agenda to succeed. What you, what you don't want to happen is the day after the president uh, signs an executive order, five district courts all around the country issue temporary relief in joining large parts of it. You know, that, that as, a, as a former lawyer in the White House, that I would have viewed that as a, I failed to do my job. Part of my job was to make sure that anything that went out could withstand legal scrutiny. Um, and and to convey the importance of those legal considerations to the policy people who sometimes might disagree, who sometimes might uh, be looking to uh, advance their you know particular programmatic agenda, but that you know making sure that the policies and actions of the executive branch um, were not susceptible either to this kind of legal challenge or to some of the confusion um, where where you had you know administration officials having to clarify provisions of the executive order, you know, on Sunday morning talk shows, you know, that, that to me, I would have viewed that as a, as, you know, we let the president down. Yeah. Maybe tell the Department of Homeland Security, like how to enforce this thing before you announce it. Um, uh, Danielle, you were a White House lawyer. You were a lawyer in the Justice Department. You were the cabinet secretary. You're now a partner at O'Melveny and Myers. You are the most uh, qualified person we've ever had on the show. I'm not actually sure how we got you here. But one of the things you did <laughs> is we asked. you were involved in the vetting uh, of Supreme Court justices, including a lot, uh, including Justice Kagan, Sotomayor. Um, I'm just wondering, what should that process look like the last few weeks? Right? What do you think has been happening, and, and how did you guys vet uh, those individuals before an announcement, since apparently we're going to get one on Tuesday. Sure. So you know, I, and I think um, I think that in the ideal uh, pre-announcement phase, what you're what you're really trying to do in the White House is to make sure uh, the president has the best kind of information he needs to make a decision, and you're also attempting to make sure that whenever that decision is announced to the world, you are well prepared to defend your nominee. You know, your nominee, you know, the confirmation process is very predictably contentious. You can identify where you think points of opposition will come from. And so part of your job uh, as a White House lawyer in the selection process is really thinking about, you know, how do I get contr- uh, command of this candidate's record so that I know this person's record inside and out probably better than that person. 
Um, so, for instance, all of the nominees um, that have been rumored to be on the, the sort of shorter list of, of people that uh, President Trump is considering are all federal judges. They all have uh, opinions that they've written over the last uh, decade or more. Many, you know, several of them were government lawyers. So in the case of someone like Judge Pryor, you know, he has a record of briefs that he filed when he was the Attorney General of Alabama. And so it's important to really have a good command over those things, not only so you can inform the president about um, his decision as to who to select, but also, you know, when that person's record is attacked, um, if that person's record is mischaracterized, you're you're very well prepared to defend it. Now, at what point in the process uh, do you go on Morning Joe between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. to try to influence the, the president's pick because you know he's watching? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think I was uh, I don't think I talked to a, a, a single reporter uh, prior to uh, the selection of the president's nominee. And I think that's, you know, we very much view this as uh, President Obama's decision. President Obama was someone who um, had probably thought more about constitutional law, the role of judges um, uh, in a democracy, and and was probably as well prepared to make that decision as, as any president in history. And, and he certainly more so than anyone in his White House. And so we would not have dared. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the uh, folks who have made the shortlist and um, like who we should be most scared of? Who would who's who's somewhere in the mainstream of conservative thinking? Right, like what? Just give us a little background on each of the I guess the top three that have made it to the to the shortlist, which is Pryor, Hardiman, and uh, Gorsh. I don't know how to Gorsh. I don't know how to say that name. Judge Gorsuch. There you go. News guys. There, there you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I didn't. It, it's um. It's always dangerous. I, you know, I think one thing I learned after the last election is to not make predictions, mm. and so I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, Us too. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, there are other names that have been bandied about, uh, including um, several women, uh, but I think no one really thinks that those are going to be the names that he picks. And so of the top three, I think a, f- a few things. One, as I mentioned, they're all, f- they're all federal judges. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of them are... Uh, uh, have been on the bench for a number of years and will come to this confirmation process with a record of judicial decisions that people can review. So Judge Gorsuch is a judge in Colorado. He is on the Tenth Circuit. Um, he is uh, he is known for for being someone who probably is as close to the mold of Justice Scalia, um, whose whose seat uh, this nominee will yeah. fill um, as anyone else on the list. In part because um, you know, he's, he's well known for having a, a theory of the Constitution that um, what matters is how it was understood at the time it was written, which is known as originalism. And that theory has obviously lots of implications for how you think about whether a decision like Brown versus Board of Education or Roe v. Wade um, and whether that decision was correct. Um, he he's also was a judge in the Hobby Lobby case, which is the case about the contraception exception. And, and he thought that the corporation at issue there, Hobby Lobby, had uh, religious rights that should be uh, respected in that. So um, uh, predictably, solidly conservative uh, uh, a judge. Um, judge Hardiman is interesting, I think, for, for two reasons. Um, a very similar um, sort of judicial record as some of the other names on the list, but he sits on the same court as uh, the president's sister, um, who's a Third Circuit judge, Judge Marion Barry, and at, at least according to press reports, she's been strongly supportive of his candidacy. Um, the other thing that's interesting about uh, Judge Hardiman is that he has sort of an interesting biography and a background, and, and that is often something that presidents find very important in thinking about these decisions. And so he was a taxi driver. Um, he didn't go to Harvard or Yale or some, you know, one of those schools that all of the current justices went to. He went to Notre Dame. Um, so, but again, um, has a pretty strong conservative record, has issued decisions on, on gun control and the Second Amendment, um, and, and um, is, is someone that, you know, the Federalist Society, Heritage Foundation are, are equally excited about. Um, and the last person that's been bantied about is uh, Judge Pryor, who... Um, is a uh, judge in Alabama, 11th Circuit judge. He was the twice-elected attorney general of Alabama. 
Um, and his nomination to the 11th Circuit was, was quite controversial. Uh, uh, President Bush recess appointed him and then followed that up with a, a very contentious um, confirmation hearing a second time around. And the part of why it was so controversial is that Judge Pryor um, is on record as saying that um, Roe v. Wade is the worst abomination of constitutional law in our history. And Subtle. at his hearing, he refused to walk back from that. He stood by that declaration. And so um, if he is the nominee, I, I would I would imagine there would be a, a host of opposition around, uh, you know, his views on, on women's reproductive issues and his views on things like uh, gay marriage. So that's, if that's the pick, that's, that's the, we want chaos, we want protests, we want, we want as much noise as possible, right? Well, what I, what I would say about this is that... Um, Sometimes it's it's easy in these situations to think that the person who has like written it down and said it out loud uh, is the person who is uh, the most conservative, um, as opposed to someone who, uh, you know, uh, perhaps has been a little bit more careful and and um, cautious in their public statements. Um, so I, I think it I think it's actually um, would be difficult to to uh, actually make the argument that. Uh, uh, you know, Judge Pryor, for instance, is, is so much more conservative than Judge Gorsuch. You know, I think part of what I think it will be important for people to do is to read everyone's records. I mean, all of these candidates are frequent speakers at Federalist Society events. You can go on YouTube and find out things they've said. Uh, Judge Gorsuch has written a book. Um, and, and so I think it's 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 easy to think that only one of these is so much worse than the others, and so if, if any of the others are picked, you can kind of um, relax. And I think that part of um, part of what will be important for Democrats in the Senate to do in particular is to you know apply real scrutiny to their record. Uh, one last question before we let you go. You, you clerked for Merrick Garland, um, who President Obama had nominated for the Supreme Court and uh, never got a hearing because the Republicans blocked him the entire time. Yeah, I'm still mad about that. I was going to say. Yes. So basically, my question <laughs> mad is: forever. My question is, how you feel about that? <laughs> yeah, this is you. this is a space for your rant on that. No, I mean, do you think do you think Democrats should? I mean, do you think Democrats should sort of respond in turn with this Trump pick? I know that I guess McConnell could probably nuke the filibuster and 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 get a judge through anyway. But um, what do you think about all this? Well, you know, I, I would I'll say a few things. I mean, you know. I, I did clerk for Judge Garland, and I think he would have been as fine a justice as as we've ever seen on the Supreme Court. And you know, if if I take one positive thing from the last year, I think the American people, you know, were able to see up close, you know, not only his sort of inter- intellect and his temperament, but just that you know he's a really good guy um, who's really decent and and has the highest character. Um, and I think one of the things that's been a little bit disappointing is is that. You know, we've we've sort of stopped talking about how we got here. Um, it's you know, this seat didn't arise, uh, you know, two weeks ago or a month ago. Um, you know, this seat, you know, became vacant almost over 300 days ago. Um, and you know, Judge Garland waited over 300 days, never received a confirmation hearing. Uh, number of senators refused to meet with him during the traditional courtesy meetings. Um, and all in advance of a principle that that was a fake principle, um, you know, this idea that you just don't confirm an, a, a nominee when it arises in the last year of a president's presidency, which which has been well debunked. Um, so I think there's a lot of temptation to just sort of like, you know, throw our hands up and say, well, we're not going to participate at all. This is a this is a stolen seat. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, Ron Klain wrote an article today in the Washington Post saying, you know, that's a very appealing thing, um, particularly for, for many of us who, um, you know, know and, and, and respect and admire Judge Garland and, and feel very bad about what happened to him, what happened to President Obama, and what happened to the country uh, as a result of, of what happened with that seat. But I think, personally, I think that it's on Democrats um, to really demonstrate um, exactly what should have happened with with Judge Garland's nomination, with whoever is nominated for this seat, um, and it's to to participate in the hearings to make sure that nominee's record goes through, you know, to borrow a term, extreme vetting, you know, to to um, to make the case to the American people that what's at stake in this is is you know not just sort of whether 
one conservative justice will be replaced with another. But really, all of these nom- all of these potential candidates are in their late 40s and early 50s, and and you're really talking about um, shaping for a long period of time to come on the Supreme Court um, a certain a certain viewpoint. Um, and I think that it's really important for Democrats in the Senate to make sure that. Um, those views are subject to scrutiny because it's it's unclear that a majority of Americans actually voted for, you know, um, you know, restrictive rollbacks in a woman's right to choose or um, uh, an absence of checks on presidential power. And so I think that's something that really should should come out in these hearings. Yeah, it is important to make an argument. Um, yeah, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Come back soon. Happy come back to. soon. Thanks, Danielle. All right, take care. Bye. That's it for Pod Save America today. Uh, thank you again to Sabrina Siddiqui and Danielle Gray for joining us. Also, remember to go subscribe to Pod Save the World, Tommy Vitor's new show, which, Check will, it out. which will drop on Wednesday. And also, if you want some merch. Merch. Cotton, get some fun shirts, people. Cottonbureau.com slash crooked. You got it. Thanks, guys. There you go. Take care. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.